Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. Welcome to a BGP-signaled version of Software Gone Wild. Today, uh, I've got a couple of experts in the protocol. We're going to sit down and we're going to do some serious navel-gazing when it comes to peering, filtering, policies, BGP optimizers, security, all of it. We're just going to go right down through it, and hopefully we will come out with something that is interesting and that uh, no one will have a headache afterwards. So with that, let me go ahead and introduce the co-hosts here. We've got Lindsay Hill. Hi there. Lindsay Hill. I'm a network engineer at Valve Corporation. So we operate the Steam network. So we're involved in a lot of pairing, a lot of transit, a lot of connectivity, obviously about getting Steam downloads working as fast as possible and game server traffic running as smoothly as possible. Low latency for everyone, right? Excellent. Cool stuff. And also with us is Kevin Myers. Hey, my name is Kevin Myers. I'm a senior network architect at IP Architects. We're a independent network consulting firm. We do a lot of uh, design for service providers, wireless ISPs, fiber ISPs, as well as some data center and enterprise work. And everyone that doesn't know me, I'm Nick Baraglio. I do stuff with things, and sometimes I do things with stuff. As you can tell, we've got a couple of different perspectives on internet peering here. You know, we've got Lindsay with the content provider style operation that he's working at. Kevin's building internet providers all over the world. And you've got me who just does what I do. So I think it might be useful to sort of go down the path of maybe talking about some of the different styles and or types of peering. You know, you've got things like, for those that may not be familiar with this, you know, you have transit peerings, you have IX peerings or exchange peerings, settlement-free, bilateral peerings. Let's talk about the differences between those things. Sure. So we operate all of those and some other variations on those. I think maybe if we start with uh, start with transit, almost all of us have to buy transit at some point, unless you're one of the tier one people listening on here who don't, don't have to pay for transit. The rest of us, somewhere along the line, we've got to pay for transit. So transit's when you pay for it. That's when you typically, you're either, you might be taking just a default route to get to everywhere, or you may be taking full tables. So you might have multiple transit providers that you can choose the best path or the, the only available path maybe from them. The key thing there is that you're paying for that. So in our case, we have transit bearings with a lot of different providers around the world. We pay, like there's obviously the, there's a price that you pay for that. That price varies around the world, depending on what you're getting, depending on the type of the person that you're buying from upstream. There are a lot of different arguments about what you pay for and what you get. Luckily, we work with some pretty good quality upstream transit providers. Uh, there are some other people who might offer you a really good price, but you got to look at the details. Maybe that doesn't have great paths to all the networks you want to get to. Maybe there's some other arguments that they get into with other providers. I'm sure Kevin's seen a few of those. Oh, yeah, I love routing to uh, to get to L.A. from New York via Hong Kong. That's my favorite path. Personally, I prefer the, the Singapore leg to that one, but <laughs> if you go to Hong Kong, we can do that. So that's the typical one. Was you, you pay for it, you get access to everyone. And that's pretty much everyone will need to buy transit in some form. 
obviously for I say people like us who have deliver a lot of content to people, we want to try and reduce that cost. So we that's when we start looking at other options. That's like internet exchanges, the PNIs, the bilateral appearance. So internet exchanges been around for quite a while. Just started out back in the days when people said, "Hey, we're all in the same building." Rather than paying someone else, why don't we just put a switch in this room and we'll all run a cable to that switch and we'll be able to send traffic to each other? Obviously, that's grown a lot and evolved over the years, but at its heart, that's what it is. A bunch of people in, a, in the same place saying, hey, let's all share, send traffic to each other via this shared network here. So we appear on quite a lot of exchanges around the world. These are all very regional generally. So from our point of view, it's we connect to most of the major internet exchanges. Those give us access to the other people who are there. And that's the key difference is it's different to transits giving us access to everyone. The internet exchanges, their value comes from the other peers who are there. So in our case, we're typically looking at the other eyeballs networks that appear there. The good thing about those is we pay a flat rate for our access and we can, and you send traffic to whoever else on that exchange is willing to is willing to exchange traffic with you. I guess probably the other thing to talk about there is that people on those, it's just being present on an exchange doesn't mean that everyone will exchange traffic with you. So there'll be typically there'll be route servers. If you pair with the route servers, you advertise your prefixes to them. Anyone else who pairs with the route servers, you'll see their prefixes and generally you can exchange traffic. But there are people who will have restrictive policies who will not pair with the route servers. In those cases, you need to have a bilateral session with them. So rather than pairing with the route server, you pair directly with that other pair across that fabric. It's the other thing in there with the bilateral pairings is, and this is something that we do a lot of, is we will pair with the route servers. We will advertise our prefixes to those. But other peers on that same fabric who are on the route servers as well, they may say, hey, actually, we'd rather set up a bilateral session with you. There's different reasons for doing this. Typically, it's to give those other networks a bit more control over their traffic. They can then apply other filters. They can try and steer that traffic in a different way. They can apply different controls. In our case, we're open to doing that because we've got a lot of content we want to deliver and we want to make sure that people can manage that traffic in a way that makes sense for them. And so that's bilateral. And again, those, it's a bilateral session. No one's paying anyone for that. I advertise my networks. You advertise your networks. We don't pay each other for it. And I guess and the other one, the one that we get into quite a bit with bigger partners is PNIs, where we sit where we are in the same facility as someone else. And rather than going via an internet exchange, we will run a cross-connect from our equipment over to their equipment. Now, it's not worth doing that if I'm only sending you 50 megs of traffic. But let's say pairing with a major cable operator and we're sending three, four, five hundred gigs of traffic doesn't make sense to keep that all on an internet, public internet exchange. Instead, we'll just run cables directly, or run cables using cross-connects and facilities, run a cable between each other, and we'll send all of our traffic that way. And typically, that's a settlement-free thing. The lines can get blurry around this sometimes, particularly when you've got large content networks and large eyeballs networks. There is some really interesting history and some big public spats between some of these players over the years. Some cakes were baked. Yes, some cakes were baked. So I think there's a couple things here. Uh, PNI, uh, for those that don't know, stands for Private Network Interconnect, and it's essentially dragging a cable between two networks that are likely in the same building and probably, you know, a rack apart or something like that. 
if this is Equinix, that is gold-plated, very special fiber, because you've got <laughs> a lot of money for that. <laughs> I was going to get to that. There is typically a cost involved with what you mentioned was the cross-connect, which is basically the process and the physical cable, the process of dragging that cable using the patch panels and the smart hands to actually plug it in. And different facilities have different ways that they bill for that. Sometimes you can buy a bundle of cross-connects and you just use them as you need to, but you always pay for them, or you do a onesie-twosie sort of grab a a cross-connect as needed. And it depends on the location and it depends on your needs, right? Typically when you buy a bundle, they're cheaper. It's, you know, it's also given rise to DWDM in the data center as well. Because if you're in a data center that has insane cross-connect fees, well, let's go, let's go mux a few strands over there. Right. And that's something that's become more and more prevalent now that, you know, optical gear has come down significantly in price and they've introduced things like packet optical. So basically you can run colored optics in network equipment. But that's the sort of synopsis of what what a P&I would be in this case for a bilateral or, or even settlement-free peering. I want to go back a little bit and talk about the different types of peerings here. So there's there's different types of networks too, right? And this is, I think, one of the key differentiators between, say, like an enterprise network, a service provider, and a content provider, and even a cloud provider, right? You have the networks that want to hot potato the traffic, or they want to get it on their network and get it off as fast as possible. And then you have the networks that want to keep the traffic on their network as long as they can in order to ensure quality of experience, right? Now, enterprise networking is typically a north-south transaction, right? It's consuming data or it's sending data in up or down directions, right? So that's a pretty simple operation there. But then you have service providers that basically want to take your traffic and hot potato it to wherever the next destination is closer to where you want to get it to. And then my read of content providers is you want to get as close to the eyeballs as possible. I want to carry this as much as I can. And that's why a lot of content providers like Limelight and whoever else are building their own backbones at this point. So our strategy, we have pops all around the world. And each of those pops, we run content delivery nodes in there. So that's where we serve up our content from. We don't carry that content across our backbone. So for us, all of our content, we deliver that at the edge of our network. The caches are there at the edge. So caches connected to places in places like, say, Frankfurt, connected to all the big IXPs there. The content is effectively created there because that's where the caches are. That's where it's generated. And we send that straight out. We don't carry any of that content across any of our backbone links apart from our backfill for our caches. So to clarify that, because I'm curious about that, Lindsay, are you saying like, does the replication of the content occur on your backbone? Like you're staging the content. So yeah. the replication occurs across yeah. your backbone, but you're not actually carrying active content yeah. for a customer to a customer from, you know, using your internal yeah. transport. And so like, obviously for us, like the replication for all that game traffic is a, tiny fraction of the amount that we generate at the edge. Right. This is like for us, our network works a little bit differently as well in that for some networks, say like the Googles and the YouTubes and so the Facebooks and the likes of that, they if you peer with them, you'll get access to all of their prefixes. With us, we do something a little bit different where if you peer with us at a location, you get our prefixes for that location and that location only. 
So what happens is that your client, when it goes to pull down content, it knows, okay, what caches, what content sites are available, which ones should I prefer, and it will start pulling content from those and will dynamically figure out, okay, who is serving me the content at the best rate at this point in time. Normally, that will be the closest one. Sometimes it will spill over to other sites. You say, let's say one of our sites is super busy, links are down, something like that. Um, but so for us, all of our content is generated at the edge. Our backbone doesn't need to carry nearly as much traffic. That's for content. For our game traffic, that is handled a little bit differently. For the gameplay traffic, that's one where we have our relays at the edge of our network. So the clients hit those. If the traffic goes from relay to a game server, if that stays within the same data center, obviously that's that's all local. If it's going to a game server in a different data center, that goes across our backbone. But for those who looked at this sort of traffic, the amount of traffic involved in downloading Half-Life Alex is a vast amount more than the amount generated when you're playing something like Dota 2. So I'm hearing this in a very specific way. The static content is pushed once and then disseminated locally. The live content you want to carry because that's the content that is going to most closely represent the quality of experience. Exactly. Yeah, quality of experience is the thing there for us because the content really, it's high bandwidth, but latency is not nearly as important. Now, obviously, latency plays a part in downloading large amounts of traffic, but it's not nearly as important. The game traffic, the latency really matters, but the bandwidth is not an issue. So for us, we'll carry that game traffic across our backbone so that we get a consistent experience across there. Obviously, you know, there are still those, that pesky speed of light limitation when I'm sending traffic between Hong Kong and Singapore or Tokyo or whatever. But at least if I'm doing that across my backbone, I know what that latency is going to be. You can control that experience. Yeah. This reminds me, you probably think of this too, Kevin, of the olden days when not everything was SSL and you could set up a squid node and peer it with another IR cache node that was close. And you basically, with any static content, you could keep locally back when, you know, you were buying T1s and maybe if you were really baller, you get a DS3 or something, you know, you cache all that locally, but then anything that is more real time, you and we still do that. Like, I mean, that's the next evolution of that is there are a few different companies out there that have negotiated partnerships with content providers like Valve and Steam and, and all the other major content providers where if you are not like not a tier one ISP where or an ISP that's got enough traffic where the content provider wants to go put a content cache directly into your network because you're pushing that much, then there are some services that you can buy. There's actually applications you can buy that will do that content caching for you. Where if you're, you know, let's say you're an enterprise or a data center, maybe you're a regional provider that you just don't meet that limit, but you still have this need. Or in another way, we've used it where you're in a really remote location and you've got SATCOM, but you still need to offload that content. Then we'll put some kind of a, a small caching box in there where to get or basically to get around the SSL, what they do, what a lot of them will do is the control traffic to like basically negotiate where the cache is will happen over HTTPS, but the content delivery will happen over HTTP and then get spoofed so that it gets delivered locally with it. Because they're already doing encryption and like content protection at layer 7, so they don't really care at that point if you have a cache within the network delivering it in the clear. So they kind of get separated into, into two different streams in the way that it works, and then they'll just spoof the IP and the DNS record to serve the content back locally. So I'm seeing that on the rise because 
there is so much content out there and people are obviously trying to reduce the distance and the transit that you need uh, to get to that content. So that's a huge thing. And it also helps to mitigate things like, um, what was that? Uh, was it Call of Duty that broke the internet in February? You know, when you think about, you know, how that worked, I, you know, I had customers. I do a lot of work for mostly like tier two, tier three providers, regional providers. And I had one customer and they had like a hundred gig of transit and we filled every pipe. Like Call of Duty was filling every pipe that they had. And, you know, because they were just continuing to take that content over transit and the IX links were overwhelmed, which is, you know, something else we could probably get into is that there's always this subtle shift between IX and transit for content providers because they're always trying to manage and balance, you know, if IX ports are getting overwhelmed for some reason, then I need to shift some traffic back over to transit. And Lindsay could probably go, you know, in way yeah. more detail than I can because that's all of his world. But from the ISP side, you know, having that caching content there helps to mitigate because you're only downloading it once and serving it locally and you're not burning up all your transit links. Yeah. And that's a really good point actually about managing load because load, a load's variable. Um, obviously, yeah, like Call of Duty was, that wasn't my, we weren't involved with that, but we could see some of the broader traffic patterns going on. I know there were a lot of, a lot of ISPs that had a tough time there for a while. Um, but that, that's the other thing is around, yeah, how do we manage traffic? So, you know, we talked about, you know, transit versus IX versus bilap versus PNI. And from a content delivery point of view, how do we manage that? And like, obviously, if I have a PNI with you, that's our preferred path. We're going to send as much traffic down that path as we can. If that's not available, fall back to an IX bearing. If that's not available, falls back to transit. But then yeah, what happens in the situation when, say, there's a we've got a big sale going on or something like that, and our traffic volumes have doubled immediately. Okay, you know, we for a lot of the links you build them with that in mind, but things happen. You know, there might be a major update. PUBG is one when that hits. It's a lot of people trying to download that. So how do you what do you do and where do you push that traffic to? Is that a mix of like, you know, is that a mix? I know a lot of times you guys will use more specific prefixes. Is that a mix of like communities, local pref and your ASN and then advertising more specific prefixes to kind of balance that order that you mentioned of PNI, IX, transit? We have a few different things we do. So we don't advertise more specific prefixes. That's not okay. the approach we use. So that's one thing for us is that if you pair with us at, at an exchange, you'll get whatever our local prefixes are for that site. If you appear with if they have a PNI from that same site, you'll get exactly the same prefixes. Gotcha. From our side, we will use a combination of preferences and metrics to audit to nudge the traffic in different directions. So local preferences are that's our number one thing. If you have a PNI, that gets a higher local preference than an IX connection. If you have a bilat, so across an IX versus just picking up routes from the route server, with that, we'll do that with metric. So we'll, we'll nudge them slightly there. It's just a slight slight nudge. That's not a big hammer for us. So that's a med. You guys are influencing med for that. Yeah, so that's one of the things. We don't respect third-party meds. Gotcha. We just ignore those, basically. You, you can set whatever you like. This is a broader thing about BGP actions. It's probably the, I don't know if I should go, but people think that BGP is like, if I tell you this, you will do that. Like, right. What you can do and what actually happens tend to be two different things, like everybody prepending for, you know, in, two, in 2020, we're still prepending to prefer traffic on the internet. Uh, right? uh, <laughs> or someone announcing like 36. Yeah. Like you said, just prepending the heck out of something and, you know, expecting it not to get filtered. Yeah. yeah. We see uh, certain parts of the world seem to really love prepends. 
Yep. We'll see things where people will prepend something 20 times and we'll still see the traffic because we see that across an IX link. And that's from our point of view, that's a much higher local preference than the path that we see via a transit link. You can keep prepending. You can keep hinting to me that this is what you want me to do with the traffic, but I'm going to do what I want to do with the traffic. Exactly. Right. That's an important distinction too, I think, because as people think about BGP, it's, we're taught early on it's a routing protocol, but it really kind of isn't a routing protocol. It's, you know, it's routing by policy and it's, it's a way to disseminate that policy internally and to enforce it at your edges. It just happens to be that one of the things that you're stuffing into that exchange with a neighbor happens to be routing. It doesn't always have to, it doesn't, it isn't always routing as we've talked about, you know, many, many times in the past, you can shove firewall rules into a BGP peering if you really want to do that. I think this is a good place to sort of shift a little bit into policies and best practices and things like that, because as we've seen over and over and over and over and over and over again, ad nauseum, policy tends to be the thing that is the most brittle within BGP and not the execution of the policy, but the way that it's implemented in the internet at large, right? And a large part of that is historical. We don't need to go into, but I want to talk a little bit about like how to do things and how not to do things based on best practices, based on what works and what doesn't work and what you can accomplish given a set of neighbors and peers, you know, peers being partners. So I'd like to hear what you guys have to say about that, because I think this is one of the parts of BGP that we sort of peripherally talk about it. And there's a lot of complaining that happens on mailing lists and in other ways. But like having engineers come out and say, like, this is the way that it needs to be done. But we sometimes see it this other way, I think will be useful. I'll jump into some of that because there's a lot we could go into here. I think, you know, the biggest problem you see fundamentally is there are plenty of tools to filter in BGP. So if you think about all the ways that you can filter in BGP, you can do it by communities, you know, as, as one way, which is one of my favorite ways to do it because it builds one of the most flexible frameworks that you're not having to touch as much. You can do prefix filtering. You can do AS path filtering. You can do regex filtering. I mean, there's so many different ways to filter in BGP and then you can combine all of them together. So the problem as I see it is really, really gets into be one of scale and management. It's that, you know, a lot of times when people are first getting into BGP, they're just going to build prefix lists and say, these are the prefixes I want, and I'm going to put it on there, and this is what I care about. And that's fine, and that gets you started. And then as NAS grows, you know, whether it's a small ISP, could be a large enterprise. You know, there's some enterprises that have, you know, data centers all over the world that are starting to have to think like a provider instead of like an enterprise and how they manage their peering arrangements. And so, you know, you think, okay, now I need to do, you know, something blows up, and then I'm going to go, okay, well, this didn't work well. I probably shouldn't send my whole full table that I learned from, you know, this provider to my other provider into my AX. And so you start to learn along the way all those painful lessons of how you should filter. And so the problem is it's really not a one size fits all because what you need to do in filtering and what works well for somebody that is only ever going to have two to three peers is a completely different thing from somebody who's a transit provider that's managing hundreds or thousands or even tens of thousands of peerings. And so you have that, that scale problem, which is why you tend to see transit providers, you know, take, especially tier one transit providers, you know, have very, very different types of filtering policies because they basically have to automate it. They have to take a stance that these are the things we're going to filter for and we want to do it this way. And then it's incumbent upon other ASNs to do more specific filtering because they, you know, the framework and the management of the way we can do filtering is still evolving, I think. 
you know, we've evolved in a lot of other areas of IT and automation, orchestration, looking at, you know, all the different ways we can do something. But BGP is, you know, still operates, you know, despite what we bolt onto it, it still operates much like it did 20 years ago. And so, you know, the problem that I think you have is you should be really filtering on all of those things, but you do have to kind of figure out, is this going to scale for me? Because I would love to like, you know, path filter on every peering, do path filtering and communities and maybe even some basic prefix defense against bogons and some other things that you know you're never going to take in and you'll usually do that. But that may not work well for somebody that has 10,000 peering. So I think it's important to recognize that when somebody says this is how you filter, there's definitely an order of magnitude into who the AS is and what they're trying to do. Yeah, definitely. I mean, everything is going to be just like with everything in IT, right? The answer is always it depends. Right. It depends on what your resources are. It depends on what your requirements are. I think that there's been some changes recently within sort of the BGP service provider world that have started to assert better, cleaner filtering, I guess. RPKI is a big one. I definitely want to get into that. That's the one I was thinking of in particular. Yeah. Eat spamming every IX mailing list with a prefix filter list update every <laughs> few weeks. Yes, ideally. Those are the worst. See if you didn't do that. <laughs> Please stop. I don't care about another slash 23. <laughs> so for those that aren't on mailing lists uh, that have to do with uh, exchanges, a long, well-traveled path for telling the peers that you have on that exchange that you're going to change your policy is essentially to send an email, right? It's routing by email. You say, I'm changing what I'm announcing, or I'm withdrawing something, I'm adding something, whatever. Please update your filters. This still happens in 2020 extensively. And it's been this way for since the beginning of forever with exchanges. With the advent of a lot of the large providers saying, look, we're not going to accept your routes unless you have them properly registered in an IRR, an Internet Routing Registry. The most familiar one is probably the RADB run out of Merit. There's regional ones, you know, per, you know, Aaron has one that they're actually just updating. Right. Well, they should. That doesn't always happen in a timely manner, but... In theory, they all do. Yeah. Right. So basically, what you do as a provider or a holder of resources, you don't even have to be a provider, right? Basically, if you've got resources you want to announce, you go and you register them. And you give, you know, here's the AS that they're going to source from. Here's the prefix. Here's the maintainer. You know, you give out all the information of who is going to take care of this stuff. Then you can build filters programmatically based on that, which is one of the reasons that most of the large providers want to do this because they want to do things like automate their filters. As Kevin alluded to, 10,000 peerings is difficult to manage manually. You're going to want to do that programmatically somehow. So you register in this IRR. They pull your resources down. They build filters according. There's lots of tools for doing this. I'm familiar with BGP Q3. There are others, uh, IR toolkit or whatever. But the larger providers are starting to require this. And they're actually getting to the point where some of them are even saying, we will not accept your routes if they're not in here. And that's sort of made a lot of the cleanliness of the filtering and the routing table a lot better. I encourage that behavior. I think that we should see more of that because it's easy to set up. And unless you're changing it all the time, you basically just set it up and it's there. That's happening very rapidly because I've had in the last year and a half, I've probably worked three or four outages that ended up being related to somebody did not have the IRR 
entry built right. And so, you know, they may have, let's say, you know, you have a regional provider that's got like maybe, I don't know, they've got like 20 or 30 prefixes that they manage and they advertise and like two or three are not in the IRR. And so they would be like, man, everything works great in the, in the network, except for like, you know, anybody that's on this subnet, like we can't get to Akamai or whatever, you know, whatever it is. And we trace it down and it's an IRR entry that's botched or not there. So. I was dealing with pretty much exactly that sort of thing a couple of months ago. Someone in South Africa saying, hey, with this subnet, we've got really great latency. But with this other one, latency is just terrible getting to you. And I'm, I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, well, you're in Cape Town. I'm in Joburg. You know, this is okay. What's going on? Oh, it turns out with that prefix, the root service says, no, that's not set up properly. We're going to reject that. So we were sending that sort of traffic from Joburg to Cape Town, we were sending that via Frankfurt or London or right. Basically, it was going out, <laughs> our, was going out via a train. Just go up the whole continent, no big deal. In this case, yeah, it was they had most of their prefixes were okay, but one wasn't. Yeah, it was exactly that situation. So that's the thing. It's gonna because a lot of some of these some big providers have started enforcing this. That's forcing you. It's flushing all of this out. Like it's you know it, you'd be pretty nervous being a big provider being the first one to make those sorts of moves. Now that people are doing it, it's pretty hard to to explain why you're not doing that. Yeah, I feel like it's like most things that are a, a significant behavioral change. Once you hit critical mass, it just sort of starts happening. And I think we're at that tipping point right now where enough of the larger folks are saying, look, you've got to do this. And I think that's a good thing. And I really think that's a precursor to the next thing I want to talk about, which is RPKI. Right. So this is basically the cryptographic authorization for a resource. And this has taken a really long time to take off. I know, I know there's some folks, Joe, Job Snyder is real big in, in getting this pushed out in some big networks. He's been a champion of this. The Manners Project, uh, M-A-N-R-S is championing this. So there's some big names behind it. It's taken a long time to take off because there's a lot of overhead involved with it and there's some in different regions, there's different politics and stuff. But I want to talk about what you guys think is requiring an IRR a good first step into then just saying, look, now we're going to be cryptographically verifying that you are the one who should be announcing, you know, 1.1.1.0 slash 24. To me, like personally, I think it's long overdue. I think the only thing we've got to manage is you're always going to have a subset of ASNs where they, the person who holds the ASN doesn't necessarily, they're not involved with operating it. Like it's turned over to another entity. And so I think that's the, one of the most challenging things you got to figure out. Like you think about IRR, you know, you build, I think it was a proxy object, you know, or maintainer object, whatever it is when you're doing it for somebody else. So I think like, you know, for any of the ISPs involved, content providers, like anybody that their world is BGP operations, you know, in a public ASN and that's their day to day world. I think it's a no brainer. I think the gray area to me is the ASNs that are, you know, whether it's an enterprise or like even we have like schools and local governments that have ASNs that peer, you know, like these are the outliers that are the consumers of all of this that I think are going to be more challenging to get it implemented. That's the stuff that's going to break. That's going to be hard. I don't think it's going to be the, you know, the people that are the players in this space every day because it's not their world. It's, you know, for us, for, you know, Lindsay and what I do, PGP and ASNs and all that, this is our world. This is our day to day, but it's not. For everybody. And that's what I see as the biggest impediment to adoption is how do you do this when you're doing it on behalf of somebody else? There's a part of me that looks and thinks, you know, there are people who own, a, who have their own ASN for whatever reason. And maybe they did that 20 years ago because that made sense. There's a part of me that looks and thinks maybe they shouldn't be operating that themselves anymore. But it's, I look at it and think, 
the world shifted, things changed. You know, maybe it made sense then, maybe it doesn't now. And sometimes I think people need to look at what they're getting out of it. You know, sometimes I, I think that's fair. Definitely. If you've got, like, if you've only got one, let's say you have one provider and multiple handoffs and you've been that way for 20 years, like, do you need an ASN? Maybe not. You know, if you're not like down the road of like having independent space, like, I think, you know, definitely if you've got independent space and you want to have diverse upstreams, you know, it's pretty much a, a fundamental requirement. But I think that's fair to say there are definitely some, like, um, you know, I, I had a whole conversation with somebody about, you know, that we were trying to fit full tables into something that really didn't need to take full tables into it. And at the end of the day, it was two hearings into the same provider. And that's the way it had been. And that's the way it was going to be. So I said, guys, why are we, you know, unless you're going to do URPF or there's something else you're wanting to do, why are we exhausting the resources that aren't there to put a full table in when the next stop is this tier one on, on both sides? Because I took a full table 15 years ago when it was, you know, 300,000 routes or yeah, 200,000, whatever, whatever it was, was, you know, and like, and I could kind of got away with it. But yeah, no, but when you look back at you, like, you could just take a default from each of those. Yeah. So there's a bit of flex that, at least for engineers of my vintage, you had when you said, I've got an ASN, I've got my own resources, and I take a full table. Like, it was insulting for someone 15 years ago to say, why do you need the full table? Well, because I can. But nowadays, it kind of doesn't make as much sense. And I, I agree with that. You know, it's much easier and you can get away. And the other thing is, with a IPv4 routing table and an IPv6 full table, because you should be taking both, you, it's you need a... Kevin, should we get him started about yeah, it? Yeah, I, I was wondering when V6 <laughs> was going to come up. I've got bets on this. Is when V6... No, no, no. Well, that's all I'm going to say about it for now. But you should be doing both. But well, let's say, having the only thing I'll say on that is if you send me a pairing request, please have, have IPv6 set up as well. Like, please, please. Should I include my ASN on that request to you? <laughs> Just send me an email from a Hotmail address. <laughs> with no ASN, with ASN 65,000, please pair with me. Yes. But I think, you know, the hardware required 15 years ago to consume a full table, even just a V4 table, is a completely different animal than what you need now. And I think that's one of the things, and, and again, to your point, Kevin, of why this is going to really be difficult for some of the smaller providers and the smaller entities that have ASNs and resources is that they don't understand that it takes the TCAM, you know, to hold all of that in some cases. And so they'll buy, you know, a low-end data center switch because it runs because it runs BGP because or a BGP firewall. Because, like, people want to put right. tables into firewalls for some reason. I'm sure there's maybe a few decent reasons, but I've not found many. Right. And I think that that's really been a, a shift in the last probably not even 10 years. But that's really changed a lot, right? The emergence of merchant silicon that is able to do all of these things, but wasn't really meant to do it at internet scale is sort of causing weird problems. I think because a lot of people that know the protocol well enough to implement it, don't necessarily always think about the fact that now they have to right size the hardware to go along with it. And there's so much more than it has 10 gig interfaces or it has hundred gig interfaces. That is the veneer I don't think anybody expected the global table to be pushing a million routes, right? Because, like, I remember doing and participating in World IPv6 Day, like, what, 2010, 2011, something like that? This is a decade ago. Yep. You know, we all kind of thought, you know, three, four years, we're going to get a critical mass and we're going to be off to the races. And we're getting there, but we're not there. So, I mean, we're still dealing with this ballooning. You know, if you go follow, what's that Twitter account that tells you how many prefixes are in the global table every day? Like, I follow, yeah. I follow that one. You know, and it's like, you know, I see the percentage of slash 24s. Like, it just goes up every day. 
those slash point that will that will keep happening. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to keep. I mean, we'll be at a million. We'll have this conversation in two years and be at a million two routes in the global table. Yep. Oh, that'll happen for sure. Well, for sure. Thing about policies and that you know, like you can hint at things to me with your twenty times prepens, and you can try and set your mid. You can do all these things you want to do. Prefix length is the one that I pretty much have to honor. Right. You send me a twenty a slash twenty four. It's the big hammer. I'm going to send you the site thing. I'm going to follow that. I have to do that. And unfortunately, we have a number of providers that maybe don't understand, or maybe they do understand, that basically to do poor man's traffic engineering, you disaggregate, which please don't do that. Figure out a better way. I might counterpoint you on that because some people don't have a choice. If you have a lot of IP space and you have communities, I agree with you 100%. You should leverage your communities and your with your peering or your transit providers, and you should do that. But let's take the example of a small ASN that is getting hammered on one link, and their upstream doesn't support communities, and they have no other way to engineer the traffic. So I will say there are some ASNs that all have like that's the only way they can keep links from getting overrun through no fault of their own because there's no IPv4 space. Now IPv6 can definitely ease that burden uh, a little bit because you can disaggregate that slightly um, to help that burden. But I think that's, you know, when you don't have a provider that supports, you know, traffic engineering and your hands are tied, which if you go into certain areas of the world, you'll definitely run into this where you just don't, you know, you think of the way we do this in North America and you think of the tier ones or, you know, Europe or, you know, most parts of Asia, there are other places in the world where that's not as, you know, it's just not as prevalent. So what I will say is a lot of the things that I see as, you know, you say you shouldn't do this or you should never do this are often dictated, you know, especially I see from, I'm a, ba- I'm a bash on the tier ones for a minute, but a lot of times these, you should never do this, or you should only do it this way, are from a position of somebody that has plenty of resources. I have all the prefixes, I have all the things, I have all these options, and you should do it the way I do it, even though you don't have the resources that I have. And things look like had- different when you're in Europe and you're paying cents per megabit versus I'm in Venezuela and I'm paying dollars. Exactly. I agree with that. And I think that there's always going to be use cases for doing those things. If you have no other choice, and it's not just in other parts of the world, in small ISPs that I talk to continually have this problem because their regionals don't, like one, they don't support V6. Two, they don't support communities for filtering or uh, traffic engineering. They basically provide basic, I will take your routes, I will give you routes, and I will announce your routes. And that's it. And if that is your only option, Right. That's your only option and you should do it that way. But in general, and I'm speaking to the folks that don't allow for that type of filtering, make it possible to sort of keep it clean. If you can, there's always going to be places where you can't do that. But this is a nice segue into the optimizers talk. I think I want to talk about the BGP optimizers because I've been on the record many times saying that I have a fair disdain for them. And I think that I want to amend that statement a little bit. While I understand that they have use cases, I think that my biggest problem with them is that they allow for poor sanitation to go unchecked in routing because they obfuscate a lot of the complicated pieces that are involved. And so my point of this is, or to sort of illustrate my point, I want to talk about a couple of the most recent incidents that have happened in the global table where a BGP optimizer that has been incorrectly configured. And again, this is not necessarily the equipment's problem, right? This is an implementation issue, have caused significant global outages or interruptions or other 
otherwise descriptive blunders for very visible resources. And I think that it's very important to call out that, look, you know, we understand this is a toolkit. We understand that it can do some pretty damaging things. So let's use a lot of care if we are forced to be in that position, which I hope to never be in. Now, I know that Kevin has a couple of reasons why they're useful. Here's my opening salvo back towards you, is that to me, this is the same argument that people use against network automation and orchestration. Because in every other area of everything that we do, it's, I don't want to enable automation and orchestration because I'm going to blow up the world. And so I think the part that we miss here, there's a couple things I think that we've got to look at is, number one, what problem are we solving? Like, I agree with you, we're probably not going to take a large transit provider or, you know, some other kind of entity and just like turn on a BGP optimizer because it's probably the wrong tool for the job. And you could probably do a lot of damage, but that doesn't mean that somebody won't invent something that does kind of help with that. Cause if you, if you go take a step back and look at like what problem does it solve? You know, let's say that you're a very simple ASN and you've got two pairings. You've got, you know, one provider and another provider and you've got a very basic classic small ASN setup with two different transit providers. And you're learning routes from both and your sessions are up and traffic is flowing over both. But suddenly, you know, this content provider, this content delivery network is unreachable. Like I've still got my route, still got my link up, but suddenly it's unreachable over this. So how do you, if it's three in the morning, you know, and you're running and I'm going to use this use case. I find this problem a lot on people that do uh, sell SIP, hosted voice or other, you know, video or real-time services. Because like that's got to fail immediately. People are going to be complaining you know, whereas somebody will sit there with Internet Explorer and let their browser pinwheel for 45 minutes before they start trying to figure out what's going on. When the video feed goes down, the audio feed goes out, they're yelling at you in 30 seconds. And so that's got to happen immediately. And if it's three in the morning, you can't always depend on your ops team. You know, maybe you're good. Maybe you're large enough that you've got an ops team that's, you know, going to handle it and go get on it and nail it. And large ISPs and transit providers definitely do. But if you're an ASN that, you know, may not have somebody at three in the morning that knows exactly what to do with that, to me, that kind of a tool can be really helpful because if I it can shift my SIP trunk over to another path because I've suddenly realized that, you know, it, I've health checked it and it's unreachable over this path. So I suddenly want to use the route that's coming in from this other carrier to get over to that. Like to me, as long as you're taking proper steps to do your filtering, which I think is the most important point is that, you know, the route optimizers, definitely there's some things they do that can be really damaging to the BGP global table. But the additional failure chains of the other large providers that absolutely should have known better than to take, you know, you should know that Akamai is not reachable from this, you know, little steel mill in Pittsburgh. You are not going to get to Akamai over a steel mill in Pittsburgh. You are not going to get to Apple and all these other major content providers over this customer of yours. So the fact that, you know, the, there, I think there's a certain amount of responsibility of all of us that participate in the DFC that, you know, back to your filtering conversation, if we'd had our PKI and proper filtering, like that route optimizer could have blown up and nothing would have ever, you know, would have ever happened. I equate it, it's like the IP phone, you know, on killing the entire network. Like somebody plugs up the IP phone and, you know, you've not set up layer two properly and it blows up the whole network. Well, it's not really the IP phone's fault. It played a role, but you as an administrator need to make sure you're protecting your network. And that's maybe a bit of an oversimplification because there are times when I think a route optimizer probably could bypass the filters. But if I look at it, you know, I'm also a business owner because I'm not just, I've been an engineer for 21 years, but 10 years ago, I decided to become a business owner too. And so I've got to take my engineering hat off sometimes and look at it and say, if I can't solve this business problem and prevent outages from happening in, in a certain way, then like all of the best practices in the world do me no good because I'm out of business. So I agree with that, actually. And I don't think that 
I would equate it with automation, which I'm very much in favor of. I think my biggest problem with it, which is what I said, is that it takes something very complicated and it packages it up in a way that makes it easy to deploy for someone who may not have extensive expertise, right? That's the whole marketing behind it, right? It makes BGP easy. I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to disagree because I think originally, I think a lot of that was the idea, but I think a lot of it morphed into what do I do when I have problems that are beyond basic peering, peering and basic reachability that are, that are more ethereal, that are harder to see that you need not a, a combination of ASN metrics, which a lot of companies do, but then also some kind of automated action to correct an outage that's upstream of me. So I think what we maybe should do is disambiguate the I'm using this because I don't get BGP or I'm using this because I want to solve a problem with reachability and health checking. Because I think that may be the divergence between you're right. If you don't understand BGP, you know, then maybe you shouldn't, you know, that might not be the tool you want to use because you don't understand it. You want to simplify it. Well, I think it, it does both of those things. I don't necessarily think we should decouple that because I think that both of those are problems that are hard to solve, right? It's hard to find a good BGP engineer. There are just not that many folks out there that really truly know it. I've, I've said it a million times. BGP is the easiest protocol to learn and the hardest one to learn well. And, you know, outside of RIP, right? I guess where you just turn it on. But, you know, it's one of those things where I think that it puts a machine gun in the hand of, it's a tool, right? I mean, it puts a machine gun in the hand of somebody who doesn't understand the destruction that it can cause potentially. Not always, right? But it solves a hard problem. And I think that you hit the nail on the head that a big part of the solution for this isn't getting rid of them, right? Because they solve a problem that's very difficult to deal with. It's how do we minimize the blast radius is essentially what it comes down to. And it's not just an optimizer problem. Yeah. If you run an optimizer in your network and you do something that screws stuff up within your network, that's fine. That's your problem. It's just making sure that it doesn't propagate to the rest of us. And that that's not the optimizer's fault. That's the rest of ours problem to deal with you know we need to make sure that whatever i do doesn't screw up you you know we put in our safeguards and our rails but we've all screwed things up and they didn't need fancy optimizers that was just us (laughs) (laughs) that's true that's totally true just a fast and loose maintenance window where you throw some config in right (laughs) i used to always say you don't earn your senior network engineer card till you leak the global table at least one of your upstreams Sometimes it's the simple things that stop some of those problems propagating further. You know, just the little stuff like we do, like we pair with 1,000-plus ASNs. We look at people's pairing DB records and we set a maximum number of prefixes that we'll, we will allow with those, each of those peers. Now, that's not perfect validation of things, but it's a safeguard. It's a rail. It means, hey, if something else has gone wrong somewhere, that will trip. And bang up. So if you start sending me far more routes than you should, pairing drops. Damage is contained. That's really what we've got to do is have, have those right policies and controls everywhere so that we contain the damage. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think that really highlights the need for project that I find has filled a, a void that really hasn't ever been filled before. It's called manners. Essentially, what it comes down to is it's setting up a framework of best practices, right? For filtering, for implementing your external routing correctly, right? Because if you have, it doesn't matter what it is, right? It could be an optimizer. It can be, you know, a junior engineer that maybe just doesn't understand. It could just be you're tired and you misconfigure a route map, right? If you blow up your own stuff, (laughs) (laughs) they don't let architects into ops after a certain time, right? Yep. (laughs) But I mean, if you blow up your own network, no one cares, right? Except for you and, but the blast radius is very contained to whatever 
you know, the radius of your network is for the most part. But if you blow up your network plus the global internet, you know, it's very visible in Pakistan and Frankfurt and everywhere, right? It's one of those things that it just really needs a set of commonly agreed upon practices. And given the way that we built the internet, however many decades ago, you know, it was all handshakes over drinks for the most part. And that doesn't scale. There's security problems and all the other things that everybody else already talked about. But I think that having manners out there and having the large providers start adhering to that, it basically starts to insulate the core, right? Where the periphery can take a little more time because some of these changes that they require are going to, they're going to necessitate capital expenditures, right? Which they probably haven't budgeted for, right? In order to support the protocols and whatever else. So, you know, you insulate the core as much. That way, your blast radius is, again, it's going to be limited to, you know, yourself plus maybe one above you. And I think that's significant. That's been a great project. We started implementing it on some of the ISPs that I've worked on, which is, um, I don't know if we said the acronym, but it's, uh, I think it's Mutually Assured Norms for Routing Security, if I remember right, is the, the acronym for that one. What was that, Lindsay? Mutually Agreed Norms. Yeah, there we go. Mutually Assured BGP Destruction. That's going to be my version. So it definitely lays out a set of principles as far as what you should do. But one of the things I like about it is that it's very practical. It, it actually will say, if you've got a Cisco router, if you've got a Juniper router, like here are examples of this config. This is what it actually looks like. So, you know, if you're a junior guy, if you've not been at this for a while and you don't know, you know, what it means to, you know, to go filter bogons or, you know, to go to go filter in this way or, you know, I'm going to, you know, multi-hop hearings and securing how many hops and, you know, all of that stuff, you know, they kind of lay out a framework for that saying, here's what you should do. Here's the way you should implement it. And here's an example of the config code. Um, and they've got that for a whole bunch of different vendors. And I think that's one of the most important parts because that's one of the hardest things I think to find in the world of BGP sometimes is that, you know, all the vendors have their examples of, oh, here's how you do X thing. But when you start getting into, you know, some of the more neutral things, trying to figure out how do we implement this, you know, this idea, this intent, and what does that look like across all these different vendors, getting that vendor neutral, you know, kind of perspective and content is, in my opinion, it's a goldmine in networking because you don't find it that often when it's, you know, from a neutral source. Yeah, absolutely. It's basically a embodiment of policy enforcement that is all canned and ready to go. And it doesn't matter really what your platform is like. Here's the policy we recommend and here's how you implement it. And I think you're right. It's networking gold. There's lots of areas of networking I could do with that sort of stuff. You know, it's not just. Yeah, no kidding. Then we wouldn't need, um, you know, third party consulting firms, right, Kevin? So. Yeah, we'd be out if it was all, if it was all published. I don't know though. We can blow it. I'll be, I'll just go work on the route optimizers, I guess, and go keep those from, go keep those from blowing up. But, um. <laughs> But yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's something that we've seen. I've seen it go blown up so many times for, you know, lack of improper filtering. I think that the more that I think that is implemented along with our PKI and, and IRRs, like I just, you know, that then a route optimizer is like, it's not going to matter. Like you said, you just blow up your own stuff and nobody else, you know, if you put something out that's not legit, they're going to block it and nobody's going to worry about it. And it's going to be programmatic and automated. You know, I think that's really what we've got to, you know, got to get to is that's the state we've got to get to and then force all these ASNs that are straggling to adopt, you know, especially RPKI. I mean, how many BGP hijacks do we have a week or a day? You know, it's just, it's insane. More than the general public would be comfortable knowing about. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's a definite problem. The problem is it's not just, you know, it's not just accidental stuff. There are people hijacking stuff with, you know, what was that? 
there was a hijack of an ASN, I think, so that they could draw people to like a phishing page that represented a site. I'm trying to remember who the parties involved were, but I remember it was like this like ingenious hack where they actually appeared to be the ASN and the entity that, you know, was providing the service and it was something financial. And so they hacked the prefixes to bring them and, and like scrape credit cards and all of this. So it's, you know, it's definitely not just accidental. There's some really, you know, there's some actors out there doing some bad stuff that you've got to defend against. Yeah, for sure. This is one good way to do that. And I think that's one of the sort of unsung benefits of proper filtering. And maybe it's not unsung, right? It just may not be thought about that much, right? Is basically you do proper filtering, you do BCP 38, you essentially minimize the amount of nefarious behavior that can happen in the global internet table, which is I mean, if you look at the news over the past five to 10 years, you can see that it's really not that difficult to do, right? It's very visible when it happens, but it's not hard. Well, and the other thing we haven't talked about is money, right? So like the other thing, the other challenge you have is that if you look at the life cycles of service providers have very, very long depreciation cycles in their equipment. They don't, you know, they're not going to go out and run and buy a router every three years because it's not, you know, that's not a cost effective way to do business. And so... One of the things, and you know, you know me, I'm a huge proponent of white box, open networking, disaggregation. That's very much a part of my world. And I think the more that we lower the cost of these tools, the better we're going to be able to adopt it. Because if the answer is always a half a million dollar router with another hundred thousand dollars in licensing, like that's half of your problem right there. The answer cannot always be, you know, you know, piles of gold to implement this protocol. It's got to be open and freely available. And I don't begrudge anybody for making a profit, but you've got to have you know, there's got to be an intermediate point so that, you know, ASNs that can't go spend $5 million on networking gear, like that shouldn't be the minimum for entry to like operate an ASN that you've got to go fork over bricks of gold to get into the DFC. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. I mean, I think cost is a huge barrier of entry for a lot of these things because especially the regional providers, the small and regional providers, they don't have budget to, I mean, most of these guys are buying gray market gear or they're buying, you know, minimal port speed, you know, they're looking for port speed. They're not looking for processing power, ASIC power. They're looking for like, I need N by 10 gig, right? I'll do whatever I need to do to get that, you know, reasonable cost that fits within my budget. And so having a way to do that economically is the only way to get the middle, the middle guys and the, you know, the smaller guys to do it. You know, and then you look at things like free range routing. I'm pretty sure free range routing supports RPKI now, if I remember right, talking to the guys over there. So, I mean, you know, there's yep. nothing preventing you from taking bare metal or hypervisor and putting something like free range routing on and getting, I think you can implement just about everything we've talked about and put free range routing in as a border router. I know a lot of people that have done it. So, you know, today more than ever, you know, years ago it was bird. That project is still around, but I, I would say more and more I see people leveraging free range routing as route reflectors, route servers, and you get yourself that in x86 and you've got a way to implement all of those tools without forking over a fortune. So I think the more. Yeah. That, you know, is published and talked about and we have best practice implementations of those tools, the faster you'll see things like that mature. Cause I don't know if RPKA is a license on some of these. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if it is, but I know there's definitely routers that don't support it that people are not going to get rid of for another few years that, until they depreciate them out of their cycle. So like that's part of the problem too. Yeah. Usually mean time to replacement for a small to mid-size ISP is going to be about a decade. Yeah. I know, you know, it's been a while since I've been in a telco, but I mean, man, we'd go walk by and hit the ATM switch with a wrench every time it acted up, you know, cause it's been going for 22 years, just, you know, 
go ahead and smack yeah. it on the side and power cycle it if it acts up because you're not some of those things were like the old uh, hp 4000s right you know you pour water in them and they still run oh dude this was a lucent it was this was like not even before alcatel lucent it was pure lucent it was it was yeah. good stuff but yeah to me that's a big part of the problem that doesn't get talked about we're always it's heavily in the technical world and it's never well you know there's you know you need to make it affordable and make the barrier to entry very low and then you're going to get wide scale adoption yeah i agree i think that's a pretty good place to wrap it up I think, uh, we've had a whole, we've, we've been on quite a journey here in BGP land. And I think there's a fair bit to digest. And, uh, I think unless you guys have any other, uh, quips or comments or rotten tomatoes to throw at me, I think we probably could put a fork in it. Only parting thought is please, please, please maintain your pairing DB entry. Please. Yes, we'll put links to that in the notes or whatever, the blog post that goes along with this. Put links to, you know, the Manor site and some other things. Everybody should be encouraged to go and learn a little bit more about this, even if it's not in your, you know, your sphere of influence. Understanding how the global BGP table works is always a good thing. So with that, I think let's wrap it up. If people want to get a hold of you, uh, Kevin, on the Internet, where, where do they find you? Uh, so you can find me at a few places. I'm on Twitter, uh, at stubberry51, which is also my blog, stubberry51.net. Um, and then you can find me over on my uh, day job, which is, uh, IP architects, which is, uh, IPARCHITECHS.net or LinkedIn or Facebook. I'm on there as well. Excellent. Lindsay, where can we find you? And you can find me on Twitter at Northland Boy or my blog, lkhill.com. Technically, I am on Facebook and LinkedIn, but don't bother. And I'm Nick Baraglio. I've got a blog that I've been trying to pay more attention to at forwardingplane.net. And I'm on Twitter at forwardingplane. And I'm on all the other places, although I never look at Facebook. So with that, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.